Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for the the sweetness and the kindness and joy in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we do not in any way want to put down or put away the need for perfect righteousness that is necessary to be before you. But Father, within that perfect righteousness is also such a tender, loving heart for lost people in you. And I want to thank you, Father, for the the kind ways, the, the sweet ways you have of growing your people and, Lord, the, the means of grace that you have placed in front of us and put in our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, with joy and with a spiritual appetite, let us come to the Word. Amen. <clears throat> so we're at the last portion of the study. What I mean by that is the life of Joseph we have been in for, I think this is part nine. Yep. Um, there's going to be part 135 coming soon. <laughs> but as, we, as we're working through the parts, uh, this really is kind of the last piece of even the part, or, or even the, the life of Joseph, this will be the last portion because... It all has to do with him and his family, and the reuniting of his family, resulting eventually uh, Joseph um, dying is at, is at the end of this book. We have come a long ways as a church family. Um, maybe some of you have been here since day one of this series. Um, maybe some of you are not. Maybe this is the first sermon you've heard me preach in the book of Genesis this morning. I don't know, but I, I just... I love, people always ask me, what's your favorite book of the Bible? My answer is the one I'm preaching through. And it really is kind of like that. Because there's a fresh scope, there's, there's freshness to it. It's new, you're learning, you're growing, and you just put yourself in the sandals of those you're studying. And so here we are, kind of coming close to the end of this book. The reason I say kind of. Is, I think I've shared this, but my intent is to begin a study throughout the book of Romans beginning in 2024. Um, there's a lot of things going on this, this year with different speakers and whatnot, and I mean that, that it will take a bit to walk through this, but we are at that home stretch in the sense of content of this book. And I just want to say thank you for your patience, for your kindness, for your encouragement throughout this series. Um, it's no, I mean, it is a labor, but it's a labor of love. I, you know, live for this stuff, so that's not a big deal. Um, but for you to keep coming back <laughs> is a big deal. Um, so thank you. Thank you um, for just plugging along with me. If you take the majority, maybe that's too strong, a good amount of every movie, of every book, of every little fairy tale or story. There's a common denominator in so many of them. I started thinking about this yesterday. This is in most films I've seen. Now, that must say something about the films I'm watching. But 
this is here. And what is the this? It is interesting to me how often, how regular, you see the centerpiece of a movie or of a book or of a fairy tale or of a story, sweet revenge, where somebody is mistreated, they're dealt wrong, uh, wrongly at the beginning of the movie, something horrible happens to them, and then they somehow, by the skin of their teeth, make it out, and then they figure out the rest of the movie, their strategy of how to get back at the bad guy. And then at the end of the movie, you get the sweet revenge, and you go, ah, I feel so much better. Roll the credits. We're good. And in the storyline with Joseph, we're at a point now in this storyline where you would anticipate ah, sweet revenge. Finally, Joseph's going to get back at those nasty brothers that did the harm to him. I wonder how he'll do it. I wonder how he'll piece together. I wonder how he'll make them suffer for what they did. And then you come to the story and you read it and you go, wow, that is a much different response than what I see this world portray in reference to sweet revenge. Joseph is a man who has tasted the glory and the sweetness of grace. And you're going to see that for the rest of our study in the book of Genesis, how he responds to those who sought to take his life, his own blood kin who sought to kill him, mocked him, slandered him. Here comes that dreamer. I tell you what, let's kill him. No, don't kill him. I got a better idea. Let's sell him. He is our brother after all. We'll make a profit off of him. We'll put some goat's blood on his robe. We'll give it to dad. We'll tell dad. Actually, no, he, he was torn from limb to limb. Remember, they don't even tell him. They let Jacob stumble onto that himself, and they just nod. Uh-huh, that's what happened. <clears throat> and so when you come to this portion where he's about to encounter his brothers, there's almost, if you didn't know the rest of the book of Genesis and you were watching this, say, in film or reading it as a story, you would, you would almost, your appetite would be ready for sweet revenge. He's got him. But that's barring the gospel. That's barring the fact that Joseph has been a tremendous recipient of God's grace. And here's the cool part, you ready? Joseph is one who has recognized God's hand in it. And so how's he going to deal with these brothers of his? I hope you stick around for the rest of this book. Chapter 42, verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there, was a, that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. Great plan. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, remember they're both from Rachel, with his brothers. For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. Why would he think that? Well, remember what's happened. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also." So verses 1 to 5, first little installment this morning, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt for provisions. Jacob receives word that there is food in Egypt. It doesn't tell us how, but you can only imagine word travels, especially when the famine is growing, things are getting desperate, things are getting scary, and he told his friend who told his friend who told his friend who told his friend, and eventually word got back to Jacob, there's food. 
Um, and perhaps he heard the storyline. I don't know. But the fact that there's a particular leader in Egypt, one who's in second in command under Pharaoh, and he, he undertook during seven plentiful years, putting all together, all this grain, so much that it couldn't be counted, and now it's prepared. Now it's ready. And now they're distributing it in a, in a good, easy, orderly manner for the sake to save everybody's life. Jacob opens the cupboard and goes, yeah, we need to do that too. So Jacob is going to send his sons, quit staring at each other. I can hear my father's voice as he says that. What are you doing staring at one another? Go get us some food. But one thing, one caveat, Benjamin's not going. Ten are going to be sent. Now, I don't want to touch on this too much because we've hit this point so many times, but again, you see some of the flavor of the favoritism of Jacob in reference to Benjamin and Joseph. You ten go, but he's not going to go because whoever goes may get hurt. Copy that. Okay, so uh, you, you can imagine that the ten hear that. Remember when when they when Joseph thought or Jacob thought that Joseph had died, it said he mourned and mourned with just this bitter weeping, and they tried to console him, tried to comfort him, and nobody could. Which again gives that flavor of Joseph was so special, so favored, so my boy, that the rest of the ten are like, well, we're still here. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. And so he does it again here with Benjamin. Remember, Rachel was his bride, his beloved, his, his most special individual. She's dead, and now he has these two sons to remember her by. And Joseph's now dead in, his, in the mind of Jacob. So what do I got left? All I got is Benjamin. I can't spare him. So Benjamin's not going. You guys head to Egypt and get me some food. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are, (laughs) sorry, it's hard to read. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. You feeling the irony here, guys? And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are are spies. So, this is the first encounter with these brothers. Remember, last encounter, 17-year-old Joseph. Coming up to the guys, guys, it's me, Joseph, it's me, Joseph. Here comes that dreamer. They take the young man, strip him, probably hit him, slap him, whatever, throw him in the pit, pull him out of the pit, sell him, he's gone, no longer to be coming back. Now there's a 38-year-old, roughly 38-year-old, Joseph, standing in front of them. They don't recognize him. Um, 
He is the one who's in charge of everything. Now, it's interesting because as you read this portion, one of the first things that hits your mind is the first thing they do when they come to him is what? The knees touch the ground. Well, let's remember what does the scripture say earlier back in chapter 37. Joseph comes to his dad and to his brothers and goes, I had a dream, I had a dream. Really, you had a dream. What happened in the dream? Well, you see, and then he goes into this description of these sheaves that bow down before his sheep. And his brothers get white hot mad. Then he says, but I got another dream I want to tell you about. The other dream is the stars and the moon and the sun. They all bow down to me as well. And they interpret the dream very, very quickly. So you're saying we're going to bow down to you? The brothers get angry. Jacob's response is he keeps it in his heart, but he gives a mild rebuke, if you will, to Joseph. That dream, that those two dreams Joseph shared with his brothers that made them just so flaming mad, they just completely walked right into the net of a fulfilled prophecy given by God to Joseph, given to the boys that they didn't even recognize, and now they've walked right into it and they don't even recognize it. Now just let the drama of that moment, because you know, you can read the text, you're, you're familiar with the text, and you can read by it and pass it so quick. But just put yourself in the storyline and think about the drama of that moment. As Joseph walks up, he's standing there. These guys come forward, and him watching their knees touch that ground, and the absolute satisfaction, the fulfillment of God's word in that dream to Joseph. Now, the sons don't sense that drama at all. They're just coming to the number two man. He's got our food. We're going to show him the rightful honor. We don't want to mess this up. Dad's waiting, and we got to get back to him with supplies. And so they just touch the ground as if nothing happened. But in heaven before the Lord and in the mind of Joseph, it is the mo- one of the most dramatic scenes in the whole storyline of Joseph. Because back when he was 17, the Lord gave him revelation And then he endured severe hardship. And now in that potent moment, the deafening silence of that moment where Joseph sees these boys, these men, touch the ground in front of him, God's affirmation, God's sovereignty. See, this is what's so cool about Joseph. And it takes a little bit of of a keen eye, but as you walk through the storyline of Joseph, you will see him consistently always giving God the glory. If you, just, you look for it. You may at first, just you know, blank, uh, the first reading, you may read through and go, Joseph doesn't really mention God as much. He actually does. It just takes a little bit of highlighting, but you will see it. It's throughout there where he corrects Pharaoh. Only God gives the interpretation. He corrects the butcher, or the baker, rather, and the can- a candlestick maker, <laughs> cup bearer. <clears throat> Okay, and, and he corrects him saying, God gives the interpretation. I don't give the interpretation. That's not me. That's the Lord. And over and over, he's consistent. He's faithful to point to the Lord. Did you notice here in the text, it tells us that immediately what he remembered was those dreams. God, those dreams that the Lord gave to him, Joseph didn't forget those. Those are still present. And so as you, as you walk through the life of Joseph, this man is one who is now freshly affirmed. Think about where he has gone from in the years since these brothers did this to him. 
from in that pit, discouraged, sad, guys, let me out, let me out. Now here, second in command, his own brothers bowing before him, complete fulfillment of God's promise to Joseph. Now look down at the text with me, if you would. It says, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. And you wonder, when you read this, how did they not recognize him? So I have, I have three older brothers and a younger sister. If I saw my brother from many, many, many yards away, I would know exactly who that guy is. Number one, because we have the same voice and we both stand the same way, and my wife says we walk like knuckle-draggers the same way as well. <clears throat> and... and <laughs> All right, I said knuckle-draggers, she didn't say knuckle-draggers. <laughs> But we do. If I saw him walking towards me, boom, brother, yep, immediately. And so how they don't recognize Joseph, you got to figure, think about this a little bit. But remember, as they cleaned him up, as he came and served, probably a shaved head, um, probably decorated, perhaps some paint on his eyes, on his face as an Egyptian leader, put together in a certain way that, yeah, he would look different. How he disguised himself, it doesn't necessarily give us a great clue on that. It's been a number of years, not that many years. I mean, really, from 17 to 38, what kind of damage could... Okay, a lot of damage could be done. (laughs) But here's Joseph, and they did not recognize him, but he recognized them. Now, think about that. These, These brothers probably haven't changed that much. There's some gray in their beard and some gray hair and that kind of stuff, but the gait is the same, the... The, the facial expression is the same, the voices are the same, the hair's the same, it's just got some gray in it. So when he sees his brothers, there they are. Now, I don't know if this was premeditated in any way. What I mean by that is that did Joseph have any anticipation of, I wonder if they'll show up. We're the supplier of food for everybody, so I'm curious if I'll see my brothers. Was he on the lookout for them? It doesn't say. Um, I, I, I certainly could imagine that he would anticipate that happening. And so the brothers come, he recognizes them, they don't recognize him, and we're told he speaks harshly to them. I don't want to put a lot of heat on that, and I don't want to say that he was a soft, kind man to them. That seems to be somewhere in the middle, where his first reaction was to speak rough with them, accuse them of being spies, because he wants to know where are these men at in their minds and heart. A lot's gone on in the life of Joseph. Remember, we, have, we did not hear much of anything that went on in the lives of his brothers. We've just been following the storyline of Joseph. So what has God been up to in the lives of these ten brothers? And perhaps Joseph is even curious what has happened in the lives of these ten brothers. God's been at work in a profound way in my life. I wonder in what way has he been working in their life. So he's going to put a test to them. Notice uh, verse, verse 9, And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my lord, verse 10, but your servants have come to buy food. So they're sharing with him their desire. 
Now, here's their, their best argument to make sure that he knows that these are good men and not spies. Verse 11. We are all sons of one man. In other words, we're not a group of spies that have all been put together from different places to come spy you out. We are honest men. Notice what they call themselves. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers. So they're they're trying to show him. We all come from one family. We're not spies. We're all here to get food. We're here with good intentions, and we're honest men. You can trust us. Verse 13, but they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. And now he puts this test to them, verse 15. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, in other words, he's calling, you know, we're we're giving an oath here. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now, that would strike them in their core to hear that. Why? Because already Jacob had said, absolutely not. You ten go, Benjamin's staying. I've suffered the loss of their mother. I've suffered the loss of his brother. I will not lose Benjamin. You go ahead. They go ahead. They fall in front of this ruler. The ruler's statement is, you're spies. No, we're not. We're, we're honest, good, good men here. We want to walk in righteousness. Don't, don't do that. And his statement is, well, then let's test that out. I want you to go get the youngest and bring him back to me. Now, I, the, as you read this, guys, and look through this portion, what keeps coming to my mind that it doesn't really give us a big indicator is how did that land on the ears of the ten? What? Why would you go to the youngest? What are you doing? The best I can surmise is that they said, there's 12 of us, one's no more, and the youngest is with dad. Okay, well, let's test out your story. If the youngest really is with dad, you go get him and bring him back. And we'll see if your story lines up, see if you're telling the truth. You said you're honest men, so let's put a test to you. And this must have struck great fear into the heart of these guys. Verse 16, send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, but if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, (laughs) you, you want to be careful. And I've said this over and over and over, particularly in Old Testament narrative, but really in all narrative, jumping to your own conclusion about the uh, intent and about the motive of somebody in Scripture. Because you could read this, and your first response could simply be, Joseph is angry, he's going to get even, because that's what I would do. Well, perhaps Joseph's more righteous than you. I know, but it really, it could be. That his reaction is not simply, I want to put the screws to them and do them harm. Rather, his desire is, I'm going to test my brothers. And he said that, did he not? Let me put a test to you to see if you are honest men. 
I've also wondered just a bit, and this is in the white space, so bear with me, but I've also wondered a bit if there's a desire in his heart to see his brother Benjamin. It doesn't say, and so I want to be very careful, but it does not say simply that he has a vengeful, evil spirit. Guys, do you remember what he said earlier uh, in chapter 41? The name of his child, it means forget because he has forgotten about all that took place up to this point. There's a, there's a sense of God has so profoundly blessed me in this life. How could I hold a revengeful spirit? How could I try to get back at them when God has showered me with his grace? And so he gives that name to one of his own sons. And so let that, let what the text says give you your keys to his demeanor in what he's doing here. And I'm not trying to get him completely off because I'm sure there's still some remembrance, some difficulty in his heart. These men did this to me. But you know what? Let's take a pause here for just a second. It is so interesting when you meet somebody and they start to tell you their story. And you find out in their storyline somebody had done such incredible harm to them. And then they came to Christ. And they were enabled by grace, the grace they received, to then grant forgiveness to somebody who'd done great harm to them. If the Lord Jesus Christ can shed his blood and die, and in that moment say these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. How can Dan Mason withhold grace or forgiveness to anybody who's ever sought to do me harm? If I have any kind of vengeful spirit or revengeful desire It's because I do not fully grasp the gospel. So, back to the text. Verse 18, Now Joseph said to them, On the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. Notice, I do not fear God. He's not talking about the Egyptian gods. Now, this must have really fallen on the ears of the brothers in a very interesting way. He says, So do this and live, for I fear God. Calling on the name of the Lord, I fear him, and I mean my promise here, what I'm saying here. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined. Remember, he said first, keep, uh, keep ten and send one. Now he's saying keep one and send nine. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. Notice your prison. (laughs) But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households. Do you see that grace just broke through? What did he just say? Because earlier, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, he said, nine are staying, one's going back. You go get your youngest brother, you bring him back here, and then we'll see if your story's legit. After three days, he comes to them and says, Okay, do this and live, for I fear the Lord. Nine of you take provisions back to your family. See to it that they're cared for. See to it that, they are, are, are in, in, that they're safe with these provisions. And that nine, I want you to bring back that youngest. So, which causes me to ask a massive question that has, is nowhere in the text. What happened in those three days in the life of Joseph? What was God up to in the, in the, in the life? 
uh, I would imagine, brother, that, that Joseph's talking to himself just a bit on the, in those three days. I imagine the brothers are talking to themselves. Who is this guy? How does he know who we are? Why did he charge us as being spies? We said nothing. We didn't show any inclination. This is so unfair. What is going on here? And as Joseph thought, thought about all the grace he had received at God's hand, even though the evil intent was in the minds of his brothers, the sweet, good intent was in the mind of his God, And now here he is, rich, wealthy, a good, strong leader, a wife, his two boys. (sighs) So I will show them mercy. They deserve nothing from me. But I will show them mercy. So tell you what, do this and live. For I fear God. One of you stays, nine of you goes, and I want you to take plenty of provision back to your family. Now listen to their reaction to what he says here, if I can find my spot. Verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Verse 21, then they said to one another, truly we are guilty. Now listen, they've had three days to talk, right? So here's some outcome of the board meeting of these brothers. Then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. Which brother? Not Benjamin. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, I can definitely hear a brother saying this, answered them saying, Did I not tell you do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. I told you so. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. Now, guys, don't let this pass too quickly. God's at work. Something's stirring in the brothers. Their their misfortune, quote-unquote, that has fallen on them as they're sitting there, and for three days they're going, how could this happen? What's going on? This is so out of the ordinary. This is so odd, so peculiar. Why is this happening to us? And in that moment, their reaction, their thought process falls on that moment of the distress of the soul of their brother. We're told that, uh, this, this gives us a little bit, you're reading this back into the story, if you will, we're told what Joseph's demeanor was like when his brothers grabbed him by the arms and put him in the pit. Guys, stop it. Please, please. I don't know why you're doing this. I just came to check on you. Dad told me to. Don't don't do this. Don't sin against Dad. Don't sin against God. Don't sin against me. Don't, Don't do this. And in the heat of the moment, with such vibrant jealousy and strong passion against their brother, their ears are stopped. They don't give a rip about any distress in the young man. And so you're out of here. Beloved, there are consequences to our sin, and those consequences will come back at times and remind us, not just to do us harm, but a good kind of reminding, a reminder that we are fallen people. And so here the brothers, their mind goes directly to Joseph. 
Don't you guys remember? We didn't care about the distress. Cold-hearted, mob mentality, we didn't care. One brother clings with all he has for his own self-righteousness. Uh-uh, uh remember what I said? Huh, remember that? I wasn't for it. Yeah, but you didn't stop it. I mean, it's pretty pathetic when he wants to rush in and say, hey, remember guys, I was not, you are the really bad ones, I'm just a kind of bad one. Okay, okay. But nonetheless, there's a recognition of their wrong. That's huge. That's massive. There's a recognition of their wrong, there's a fresh guilt that's coming up, and now they also recognize that this has come back on us because of our sin. God is at work. He's at work in lots of areas in this storyline. Don't for a second think that he's just fully devoted to Joseph. No, no, he's over here too. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. Remember at the Tower of Babel's when the Tower of Babel, when the, the, the languages were changed and dispersed so folks could not understand one another, apparently uh, they started to design that they would have people learn foreign languages so that way they could be paid and function as an interpreter on their behalf. And so Joseph has this interpreter between him and his Hebrew brothers. What they don't know is that Joseph is well aware of what they're saying the entire time. Now, there's some funny clips on YouTube or whatever where you can watch somebody around somebody else who speaks a foreign language and they're talking about them, and then you can see how that person springs on them and then speaks back to them in their own language. It's fantastic. And so that's, that's uh, kind of interesting to see. Joseph doesn't do that here, but nonetheless, there is something taking place in this text where the brothers are communicating to the interpreter. Joseph is over here, and the whole time Joseph is sitting there listening going, They just owned it. Remember, these guys have no idea he's Joseph. There's nothing of that nature in the text whatsoever. They're just talking to the interpreter. The fresh guilt, the, that, that pressure in their mind and in their heart that, man, we really screwed up. We really, really messed up. Remember, remember the distress in Joseph's face? How could we have done that? And there he stands, a listening ear, as if he's hiding getting to hear what's on the mind and the heart of his brothers. 24, and he turned away from them and wept. There's no, you, you can't get words wrapped around the intensity of that moment. When you think of little brother, he's just got to walk away. And there they are, what they just said. And remember earlier, right? He disguises himself. He speaks harshly to them. You're spies. You're checking out the undefendable part of our land. I know why you're here, so you're all going to prison. Three days later, like a little baby crying behind some barrier because he is so profoundly sensitive to God and to what's taken place in the lives of his brothers. And so it's, it's much like the text, the shortest verse where Jesus wept, this, we're just simply told, Joseph stepped out and wept. And the intensity of that man pouring out that emotion before God, God, 
this is overwhelming. This is too much to consider what you've been up to, not only in my life and the life of my family, but now in the life of my brothers too. They recognize what's been happening. Now he comes and he's going to follow suit with the test. Verse 24, but when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. They need to see this. They need to be aware of what's taking place. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain to restore every man's money in his sack to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of the sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? First time in the storyline where the brothers make reference to God. I just think it's so interesting that here they are, the, 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 the children of Israel, if you will, the children of, of Jacob. These will be the heads of the 12 tribes and all that. And this is the first time we see them make reference to God. And do you see their, their reference to God? What is it? Outrage. What is this God's done? I think it's fascinating, you guys, and don't let it go by too quickly, that they don't say, what is this that one of the servants did? What is this that one of the slaves did? What is this that that ruler, the second-in-command guy, the one who gave us such a hard time, what is this he's done to us? Their minds immediately go to the Lord. There's a mindfulness of God in these sons. Remember what they said earlier. They said, this is the reckoning for his blood, a, and then here we see him, them saying, what is this God has done? There is a mindfulness in reference to a sovereign over what's taking place, even in the minds of the brothers. But they see pure judgment from him. Not grace, pure judgment. God is going to pound us for what we have done. And so they open up the sacks, and there's all the food that was given to them. And the money that was supposed to pay for all the food is all there. And their reaction is, you've got to be kidding me. We are in so much trouble. Because it's going to appear to everybody that we're thieves. That we really were spies. That we stole. Let's head back home to dad. Verse 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying... The man, (laughs) just the irony, the man, the Lord of the land spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household And go, but bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men, I will give your brothers to you and you may trade in the land. 
Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Now catch this, guys, verse 36. And their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. That's a pivotal point in the storyline because Jacob just stated the exact opposite of reality. All these things are against me. No, actually, all things are working together for good perfectly in sync with God's... I got it, Kath. You don't have to grab that. Although I don't know where they went, so you do have to grab that. No. (laughs) Thank you. And so Jacob's, Jacob's perspective here is very much skewed. It'd be interesting if somebody in that moment stopped him and go, whoa, whoa, dad, dad, dad. Um, But remember what happened with Esau? You were scared to death and you thought this is the end and it totally worked out beautifully and the Lord was at work in that. You remember that? Yeah, remember that. Remember Laban, how it all appeared that you were a dead man and the Lord worked in that? Yeah, I remember that. So dad... There's a, there's a ton of places in your life where you were tremendously fearful and worried, and God in his sovereignty showed pure grace and put it together perfectly. Is it possible this is not all against you? Now, that's me harping on Jacob, but you know what? How many times in the week do I find myself saying, oh, seriously, everything's against me? I have to stand for three more minutes in this checkout line. It's all against me. (laughs) Jacob's not looking at the big picture. He's looking at the small, tiny little picture right in front of him. I lost Joseph. I lost Rachel. I lost this. I lost that. Now I lost Simeon. And now you tell me you want to take Benjamin too? Everything is against me. God, why? And the irony of that moment is spectacular because at that exact nanosecond of his distress, God is perfectly working together for good for his sons, for himself, and for an untold number of people whose lives are being saved by the wisdom God gave to his other son, Joseph. All at the exact same time that he says, woe is me. Let that be a lesson to us. That in that moment of distress of soul, you don't know what he's up to. How could you? How could you know what God is doing in the details? He's God. Sovereignly at work. And so Jacob's reaction, everything's against me. 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, now I'll be honest with you guys, in my study this week, I don't know why he does this. This is a stupid statement. You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back. I tell you what, Dad, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill your grandkids. <laughs> Deal. I mean, come on, what? <laughs> I just, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not sure. My, my, and I, I mean this sincerely. I, 
I'm open for your comments and your thoughts on this, not right now, but later. Um, and simply because it seems just outrageous. And so what is in the mind of Reuben? Is he simply saying, uh, you know, kind of like I heard one guy speak about the Apostle Peter during the earthly ministry of Jesus, Peter having nothing to say said. Now you see that all, all the time throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus. Is this Reuben simply tripping over himself, saying, Dad, I got an idea, trying to earn favor back from Father? I don't know. I just see the, the exchange proposal, and I think, that's ridiculous. And Jacob doesn't, doesn't agree to that in any way, shape, or form. He doesn't buy into that. You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. That is a massive statement to be made there by Reuben. Not about the two boys, but about, I will take full responsibility for Benjamin. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. And if you notice, I'm not preaching this today, but just look at verse 1 of 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt. That was a hefty amount of grain brought back from Egypt. If you think about, you've got nine brothers, nine donkeys, they load all that grain onto those, they bring it all back. I don't know how much bread these guys are eating but there they are, and it says that they ate it all to the point that it was gone. And I wonder what the dinner conversation was. I wonder what your brother's eating in prison tonight. Because remember, there's a brother still waiting, right? But they're scared to go back. We have all the grain. They, we have all the money. We proved ourselves to be spies, really, is what they're going to accuse us of. What do we do, and it ends there as far as chapter 42, and we'll pick up next week. A couple points of application real quick. It never ceases to amaze me when I ponder just how many angles our Lord is working in just a handful of events. You can take all the players in the storyline and see God's work in it all. Just take Joseph, just Joseph, and write out everything God has been about in the life of this man. But also, you have all the people who are surviving the famine because of the Egyptian provision. Think about this. All the families and their families and their families and their families. How many single individuals, their lives are completely altered because the cupbearer remembered that there was a Hebrew slave that told him the interpretation. Thirdly, you have Benjamin. We don't know a whole lot about Benjamin, but he will soon unite with his brother Joseph. And you have Jacob, and I'll cut him some slack, though a bit distraught, will soon receive some of the greatest boosts of joy he has ever experienced in this life to know that his boy is well, beyond well. All that has taken place thus far is perfectly coming into place like a hand slides into a glove and in the midst of all this, even the bad guys of the story, the brothers, have fresh guilt, 
There's a growing, brewing repentance in their soul. Every last player here has the fingerprints of the sovereign God on them. Now, here's the temptation. Yeah, Dan, but that was just one special time in history where God was in total control of the details. In love, I challenge you, go back to the book. Go back to the promises, some of the promises our brother spoke about earlier. Go back to the word. The declaration of the scripture is that this is not simply one time in history where God was sovereignly at work in details. He is the sovereign God over all things. He is at work in all things. And brothers and sisters, that means in your life, this moment, the Lord is at work. Even in the moments where our reaction to God is, everything's against me. You saw what happened with Jacob. Jacob's reaction was, God, you brought everything against me. When in reality, remember, that only existed between his ears. In reality, God was perfectly putting everything in place for good for Jacob and his kin. So take that to heart. I pray you would. Father, thank you for this morning.